Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to Bard Flies, your semi-weekly, somewhat silly, occasionally even intelligent analysis of the plays of William Shakespeare. In today's episode, the saga of Henry VI continues with conspiracies to seize the throne, three separate rebellions, efforts to kill all the lawyers in Britain, the outbreak of the Wars of the Roses, and the world's most ineffectual royal leader since Nero. I'm James Smith. And I'm Will Quinn. This is Bard Flies, Episode 4, Harumph, Re of Gloucester. You are the king's hand, and the king is a fool. Your friend I know, but a fool, and doomed unless you save him. I've been in the capital a month. Why have you waited so long to tell me this? I didn't trust you. So why do you trust me now? The queen is not the only one who has been watching you closely. There are few men of honor in the capital. You are one of them. I would like to believe I am another. Will, can you pick up the plot where we left off? Sure can, James. In Henry VI, Part 1, we saw a weak, young, and naive King Henry struggling to retain control of England's overseas possessions in France shortly after the death of his heroic father, Henry V. His woes are principally due to French trickery and feats of arms engineered by Joan of Arc or Joan Le Pucelle, as she's known in the play. But his deeper problem is the division in his own court between Richard, Duke of York, and the Duke of Somerset of the House of Lancaster, both of whom have been squabbling over power and petty insults and have taken up the white rose and red rose as the symbols of their respective families. That play ended with the barbecue of Joan Le Flambe, a peace treaty which the French do not intend to honor, and the betrothal of Henry to Margaret of Anjou, a princess whose family does not offer much political value, but who William de la Pole, Earl of Suffolk, believes he can use to control the king. Suffolk is willing to trade some of the English territories in France to achieve his aims and broker the marriage. The play opens with Henry's wedding to Margaret, who is now Suffolk's secret lover and co-conspirator. The king's uncle, Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester, serves as the Lord Protector and is skeptical of the match because he does not believe it serves Henry or the realm's best interests, but he cannot persuade his wayward nephew to do otherwise. Suffolk sees Humphrey, who has the king's confidence and is beloved by the common people, as an obstacle in his rise to power. To get him out of the way, he entraps Humphrey's ambitious wife by connecting her with a necromancer to define the future. She summons a spirit who offers some vague prophecies, but then promptly gets arrested by the Duke of York before the ritual wraps up. She is then shipped off to house arrest on the Isle of Man, much to her husband's chagrin and sadness, but ultimately he refuses to do anything about it or to counter the men who set her up, because he believes he has to uphold that law. Suffolk, Margaret, York, Somerset, Cardinal Beaufort, and a host of others then falsely accuse Humphrey of everything from embezzling public funds to treason to torturing prisoners using, quote, strange, end quote, methods. Humphrey pleads his innocence and argues that he's only tortured people who deserved it. The king says he thinks Humphrey is innocent and that God will sort it all out at trial. Humphrey then gets packed off to prison, only to be murdered by some of Suffolk's hired thugs before his court date. Beyond the drama in the palace, York secretly lays out his claim to the throne via his ancestor Edward III and tells his friends Warwick and Salisbury that they need to start rallying an army to support him as the situation deteriorates. When the court finds out that Humphrey has been murdered, the nobles and commoners alike demand that an ineffectual Henry VI punish Suffolk for his treachery, with the people threatening to break into the castle if they don't get a reply. 
Margaret pleads for her lover in vain as he gets banished. Suffolk gets on a ship, which promptly gets waylaid by pirates, who kill him and send Margaret his head as a souvenir. She vows revenge. Meanwhile, York takes his army to Ireland, ostensibly to crush a rebellion, but not before asking a heavy, pipe-hitting soldier of his named Jack Cade to run a false flag operation in London, staging a revolt that will test the waters as to whether the commoners would support York's claim to the throne. Cade takes over London, proclaims himself mayor, and proceeds to run the city like Bane runs Gotham. He threatens to kill all the lawyers and everyone who can read, makes it a crime to drink weak beer, and permits wanton murder, pillage, and savagery. Hilarity ensues until Lord Clifford arrives and convinces the commoners that King Henry VI deserves their support after all. Cade runs off to the woods and gets caught in the garden of a local nobleman, who promptly kills him. Meanwhile, York comes back to England with his army and declares his loyalty to the king, and then accuses his rival Somerset of conspiring against the throne. He demands that Somerset be arrested, but when the latter shows up with the queen, York says to hell with it and claims that he is king, to which his sons, Edward and Richard, say, hell yes. The nobles take sides, and the Wars of the Roses begin at the bloody Battle of St. Albans, where Richard kills Somerset and York kills Clifford. The Yorkist army is flush with victory as a sad King Henry takes off for London, and Margaret and Clifford's son plot a counterattack for the Lancastrians. A word of warning to uh, to our listeners, this is going to be an extremely politics-heavy podcast because I, I think, Will, you'd agree with me that thematically this play is largely and almost exclusively concerned with political questions. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> Will, I, reading this play, I, I kind of felt like the major plot movement was the story of the downfall of Humphrey Plantagenet, Duke of Gloucester, protector of the realm. That, that's pretty much the arc of the first three acts of the play before we get into Act 4 and Cade's Rebellion. And I'm interested in talking about the way that Shakespeare portrays Humphrey, because Humphrey is pretty, I think pretty clearly, the most straightforwardly noble of the entire aristocratic group at the top of the kingdom, and really, I think, is pretty much the only truly noble character in the play, or, you know, maybe the only character who's portrayed in a positive light. Nonetheless, he doesn't really seem to have a very strong grip on the political situation. He is completely blindsided by the agreement that Suffolk has made to give back Anjou and Maine to the French in the wake of the the wedding contract for Margaret. And ultimately, he's either unable to detect or unwilling to take action to prevent uh, the plot that will lead to his downfall. So... I kind of had, I'm going to give what amounts to a two-option selection, and you can tell me if you agree with one perspective or the other, or if you have a completely different read on it. I couldn't decide if Humphrey was simply an ineffective political actor, and we're supposed to view him as noble but incompetent, or if what we're dealing with is that, you know, he's an older guy, or an, old, an older man, I should say. He came into his own with his brother, Henry V, who was a very strong king. And, I, and so the other possibility was that perhaps Humphrey's approach to government and his belief in the way the political system should work can only really operate under, you know, is well adapted for 
the milieu in which he came to power originally, but is not well adapted to this situation with a weak king in Henry VI. What was your read on this character? So I actually, I think that's essentially right in terms of portraying his lack of flexibility and to some degree his nobility being his downfall. I think Shakespeare is playing with this idea that you know, there's no question that Gloucester is a patriot, right, for for England, essentially. You alluded to um, Suffolk giving away Anjou and Maine, which are territories in France, back to the French as part of this marriage contract for Margaret. You know, that this is sort of what they were fighting the war over in the previous play, to some degree, or at least part of the territory they were fighting for. And Suffolk has given away in exchange for basically political power for himself. So you have Suffolk, who's very craven, and you see this contrast of Gloucester the Patriot, but Gloucester is completely almost unmanned by the faction in the court. He has no allies. Even somebody like York, who is spinning his own conspiracy and could be a potential counterweight to the other conspirators at court, there's no effort by Gloucester to suss that out and figure out what's going on. So you're sort of left with the impression that Gloucester knows that there's Basically, he's in a den of vipers, but he lacks the sort of political dexterity and flexibility to deal with a deal with a pretty fractious realm. And and you sort of realize he's it's like Henry V, um, who preceded, who was a strong king, his brother was sort of a single point of failure, right? If you are able to have another good king who has the respect not only of the people but also the fear of his nobles, you could continue and you could be noble in the sense that Gloucester is noble and have the fear and respect of the people and your nobility. Uh, That does not happen here. And I think Henry VI is such a weak vessel that um, nobility is Gloucester's downfall, essentially. Um, Yeah, you know, he he strikes me as the Ned Stark of this play to continue our Game of Thrones parallel. and, And that feels really right to me, where he's clearly the one we're supposed to be the most sympathetic to, even though his approach to politics is really not appropriate or effective in the circles that he's moving in. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's a tough, you know, you watch Game of Thrones, right? And of course, you have this instinctual sympathy for Ned Stark, who is is a character of, of high moral character, and it ultimately ends up with him being beheaded, right? And, and betrayed in these, you know, venomous court politics. And I think that is that is basically what happens to Gloucester. I guess the, the challenge is, do you believe that Gloucester is an admirable character for all of that? You know, it, it, and you sort of get into or the consequences of what he does uh, and his sort of lack of efficacy in bringing the court to heel and dealing with the factions that are undermining the throne. How much do you factor that into your assessment of him as a person and so, how admirable he is, right? Because there's so I'm, I'm glad there. you... I'm really glad you brought this up because I think there's an interesting question when you look at the relationship between Gloucester and his wife and the significance of the decisions that Gloucester makes. And I think there's obviously a question of like, well, should the ties of blood or the ties of intimacy cause Gloucester to behave differently? But also I think the way that he behaves and what he says about it is pretty indicative of some of these issues. So... That's in Act 2, Scene 4, and basically, Mar- what's her name? Her name is Whatever. Eleanor. The- oh, Nell. Yeah, Nell. Eleanor, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
the the Dutch so the Duchess of Gloucester um, has been exposed and she's doing her walk of shame more or less and they have this conversation and the Duchess basically says well I'll, I'll tell you exactly what she said she says Ah Gloucester teach me to forget myself for whilst I think I'm my married wife and I'm before I be attainted. That was the line, that last, I must offend before I be attainted, was the one that I really highlighted because it's clear that Gloucester has, uh, he has a faith in the law that is completely misplaced. And this was what made me think that he was acting within a discourse of politics that had served him well under Henry V, but is no longer relevant. You know, and really, the Duchess sees the situation much more clearly than he does. You know, she sees what's going to happen to him with, with these other people plotting against him and warns him, and he truly believes that if he has done nothing wrong, he can't be harmed. Yeah, yeah, I, absolutely. I mean, I think it's I think the, the lines you just quoted about his fear of being attainted, you know, attainted means to be exiled or sort of cast out as a traitor, basically. I mean, it could lead to death would be what you'd expect or banishment. And there's actually kind of an interesting read on that where you could take that to mean I have these loyalties to the law and to the king that have to transcend my personal affection to you, my wife. But there's also an additional reading that perhaps I'm adding on, but I think it's instructive and maybe sort of an interesting moral gloss on it as well. He is also committed to his position in the court, right? And he's trying to maintain, in some sense, his position and authority, because there's a moment where he also says, you know, I can't, I can't put myself under suspicion by vouching for you in this situation. You know, I can't be party to, uh, you know, somebody who is accused of treason against the king. And you can sort of read that as, as him also trying to stay close to power. But sometimes staying close to power, 
particularly if you're not in a position to actually do good under the current regime, that can be sort of not only foolish, but it can be a sort of unethical act in politics as well. And you have these different approaches. We'll sort of get into the Machiavellianism of the House of York later, but you get the sense he's sort of a prisoner of, of a discourse, as you put it, of the law that doesn't really apply. And yet he doesn't really have the conviction to even defend the bond with his wife and sort of the good of the realm that he can see as being undermined. He's got to stay within the strictures of, of being the Lord Protector at court when that position doesn't really, to really protect the realm, you might actually have to go outside the law. Yeah. I feel like he's sort of doubly damned here, right? Because he essentially has to betray his wife to uphold the law. And in a way, that's a very noble decision, right? Because that's saying that he believes there is a higher authority that he has to answer to. But by doing so, he's actually condemning himself because he's not willing to take the action to protect either his wife or himself from the machinations of the other people at court. And the, and the realm, too, right? I think that's the interesting question that I'm, I'm left with, is in the effort to uphold this code of honor, and obviously a tie of blood to King Henry, despite the fact that King Henry is like basically manifestly unfit to actually have a strong grip over the realm and to provide for the welfare of the people, uh, and we can talk a little bit about Henry's completely ineffectual approach to leadership, but it's like by being a prisoner, not only is he condemning his wife and himself, you could argue he's also putting England in a very disadvantageous position where it's about to be riven by faction and potentially civil war, or sort of a almost like soft coup d'etat by Suffolk and Margaret. So there's sort of an interesting question, and I think a huge part of this play is, is debating the honor of Gloucester and comparing it to the, the comparative lack of honor of the Yorkists and Suffolk and the rest of them. And in the middle of all of this, Henry is sort of a passive figure who's more acted upon than taking direct action on his own behalf. And he's constantly, he's kind of a pious fool. Like he's constantly appealing to God and to sort of goodness. And he's trusting of everyone. Uh, he's, he's completely out to lunch. I, I mean, he seems so disconnected from the goings-on and from any ability to actually effectually run the show. You know, he's, he, he's essentially delinquent. You know, he's an absentee landlord. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. This is a natural segue, I think, into my next topic. But before, before we do that, so what is ultimately your view of Humphrey? It sounds like you think he's actually a fairly ambiguous character. He's a tragic figure. I think you are meant to admire his sense of honor. But what is the essence of tragedy? In some sense, it's the, the conflict between two right causes, in a sense. And in an ideal world, of course, upholding the law and fealty and your oath works well. But when the context in which that oath is framed no longer serves not only yourself and your family, but also the realm and the commonwealth, that's sort of the tragedy of Gloucester, is in attempting to steer a middle course in which he's unable to actually be effective on behalf of the Commonwealth either. He ends up in, in a really bad position and um, 
I'm not saying that he unilaterally could have averted the War of the Roses, but he certainly makes it a lot easier for it to happen. He doesn't do much to prevent it in the end. So in that sense, it's, it is truly a tragedy. I don't, I don't necessarily view him incredibly negatively, but it's not an approach to politics that is particularly effective, I think, in the world that the play depicts emerging in England. Right. Well, so that, that brings me to my second question, and I know you have a passage that relates to this, but let me just lay out the question first. You know, reading the play, I was really struck by the feeling that Shakespeare, either generally or, at, but at the very least in the context of this play, is seems to me to be adopting a highly pessimistic view of politics. We basically have a, a poo-poo platter of really really bad options represented by the various figures of the play, right? So starting with Humphrey, who we've just discussed, who is fundamentally a patriot and noble and is the most dedicated to the actual best interest of the country, but is really unskilled at the real politic of the rest of the court. There's King Henry, who is a legitimate sovereign, but should represent political stability and should really guarantee political stability, but who is pretty much completely uninterested in the business of ruling. I mean, at one point during Cage Rebellion, he straight up says, was never a subject long to be a king as I do long and wish to be a subject, right? So he is just not interested in the job. There's Richard, specifically Richard, but really the the whole group of nobles around Henry who are basically cynical and deserve, you know, and desire power almost exclusively for the sake of raw power and don't seem to have any kind of actual governing interest. And then there's the, the Jack Cade rebellion, basically the popular uprising who are kind of interested in partying more than they are actually interested in affecting social change. So what, what do you think? Do you think that Shakespeare is... A pessimist or what? Yeah, I think I think he is. It's interesting because Shakespeare, to some degree, is you know, performing plays at times for nobility, uh, sort of involved in these companies. So I think that there is this recognition that you can have good monarchs. And when we get to Henry V, you'll see a portrayal of what he considers to be a good monarch in that context. But man, the stars really have to align for that to happen in Shakespeare's universe, you know, at least according to what we've seen so far. And it's striking that he's working on these plays relatively early in his career, where this sort of cynical, pessimistic tone you just see a lot of downside and not a lot of upside to all of the options that you described, whether it's noble but ineffectual Humphrey, ineffectual Henry, Machiavellian York and the rest of the high nobility, or Jack Cade, who is basically leading a uh, sort of anarchic rebellion that is immoral and ridiculous and absurd. So yeah, I, I think it's it's profoundly pessimistic, and you get the sense maybe if you blended some of these elements, you might have better results 
than pursuing any of them unilaterally, but it's very difficult to blend any of these views or approaches to ruling together. You know, somebody who's a little bit more Machiavellian, but in the service of good ends, might actually get through this, and that's sort of what Henry V is sort of understood to be in the story and afterwards, effectual, strong, but also good and close to the people. But nobody is able to really successfully combine that, and there's no vision behind most of the characters. They talk a lot about themselves. They don't talk about the realm or the people, except in passing. Yeah. Do you want to give us your uh, your passage? Because I know it relates yeah, to this Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I have two passages that relate to these themes. The first involves Salisbury, who had been previously loyal and pledged to Henry VI, and he aligns with York, the Duke of York, in the final confrontations that take place in the play. And so the, the scene I wanted to relay is Salisbury talking to Henry VI about his oath and why it doesn't really apply anymore. So Salisbury says, My lord, I have considered with myself the title of this most forgot to bow. I have considered with myself the title of this most renowned duke, and in my conscience do repute his grace the rightful heir to England's royal seat. Hast thou not sworn allegiance unto me? I have. Canst thou dispense with heaven for such an act? It is great sin to swear unto a sin, but greater sin to keep a sinful oath. Call forth our troops and bid them arm themselves. Away, my lord. So Salisbury is laying it all on the line here and saying, yeah, oaths really only apply up to a certain point, and I am going to break my oath and realign. Now, it's delivered in a self-serving tone because it's not entirely clear that any of the conditions he's laid out that would justify breaking an oath are actually happening. But it's this kind of transition moment between a sort of politics based Mm -hmm. on honor to the politics of expediency. So, yeah, actually, this this is an interesting point. One of the scenes I was thinking about bringing up was basically where Richard of York pitches to Warwick and Salisbury that he should be king rather than Henry and launches into basically a very long-winded explanation of the dynastic family tree that results in his claim. This whole thing about Edward III had seven sons, Edward the Black Prince, William of Hatfield, Duke of Clarence, etc., etc., culminating with saying, by her I claim the kingdom, referring to his mother, who is the daughter of Edward III's third son. And Warwick, having listened to this, says, what plain proceedings is more plain than this? You know, and it's it's a very, to me, it was a very funny moment. But beneath it, I was wondering, well, is Warwick's seeming to, what I would say feels like a cynical statement, right? Saying what plain proceedings is more plain than this is obviously meant to be funny, I think, from a literary perspective. But, you know, it also seems to be Warwick somewhat sardonically claiming to accept this explanation when really what he's accepting is the expediency of supporting York. And I wondered, you know, is this sort of cynicism a reflection of the ambition of Warwick and Salisbury, or is it more just a reflection of the inadequacy of Henry VI than the need to make a change? And I, I couldn't really decide where I fell on that question. Does that make sense? 
Yes, it does. I mean, I think for all of these nobles, and you get the sense they all kind of know that the realm is not being well governed, but it is not exactly clear what governing the realm well really means to any of them. You know, there's curiously little glimpse of what actually good government looks like in the context of the play. So it's hard to read noble motives into what they're doing. So that that was sort of my read of it. I mean, there's also an element of... So Warwick actually, uh, and this is in the Dramatis Personae, Warwick calls himself the kingmaker, and you get the sense he's a bit of a sycophant, along with, um, to a lesser degree, Salisbury, where they're constantly saying to uh, Richard, Duke of York, that they're going to back him and he's going to be so great. They basically are kind of yes men, was my my reading of the play, because they thought it would lead to their personal advancement. So I guess I take the cynical side of that reading. I would feel differently if they were more explicit about why they thought the situation can't stand. But the whole reason they acquiesce to Richard is based on this sort of farcical pretext of Richard's lineage and his lineage being better than uh, Henry's. So, you know, and considering that's basically played for laughs uh, by Shakespeare, I can't imagine that he wants you to think of Warwick or Salisbury as particularly noble characters. And, uh, you know, I also think it would be hard to support that reading just based on what we see going on in the play, you know, in terms of the patterns of behavior taking place amongst this coterie of nobles, right? I mean, we see the use of an accusation of treason to both settle scores and to advance the interests of the people making those accusations. You know, there's there's something of Robespierre in Salisbury, Warwick, and Richard. There is a bit what amounts to a power vacuum caused by Henry's disinterest in ruling that invites that kind of behavior. There is the short-sighted squandering of the military gains of uh, both of Talbot and of Henry V himself. And there's sort of this just corrupt desire for power for power's sake. And I think, oh, and let's let's not forget, there's entrapment of Gloucester's wife, right? There's an effort to find whatever means necessary to create a situation in which Gloucester will be embarrassed. It, it doesn't feel like anyone is comporting themselves in a particularly noble way. And that makes it hard to take seriously the idea that they're really just looking for the best interest of the kingdom. Yes, these are these are not great people to be to be clear across the board and I think you see the I don't know, the whatever the opposite of an apotheosis uh, would be of this tendency with Richard Plantagenet who's Richard Duke of York's son. That character goes on to be Richard III about whom we will talk about, you know, in a I guess in a few plays from now. He has this wonderful line where I believe he's fighting with Somerset, actually, if I recall, who is his father's rival. And he says, Sword, hold thy temper, heart be wrathful still. Priests pray for enemies, but princes kill. And that's somewhere in this in this battle of St. Albans. And that is Richard basically raising the Machiavellianism up to an 11, where he basically says, you know, we're going to dispense with all of this moral code stuff, any sort of restraint that religion is supposed to provide. And, you know, you can contrast that with all of the holy words of, of Henry VI, and you just have Richard Plantagenet 
ruthlessly dispatching people on the battlefield with no sense of restraint. And later, right, you see Richard III kill members of his own family, including his brother, to ascend to the throne so he yeah. can... Not in this play, so, to be clear. Not in this play, not in this play, to be clear, in Richard III. And I think people at the time saw Richard III in Elizabethan England as, as something of a villain, right? He was popularly not well-remembered. I'm sure Shakespeare's later work sort of underlines that. And Richard Plantagenet really jumps off the page because he is the person who is saying in the... There's no pretense about it when he is talking to the audience about what governs his worldview. You see a little bit of that with his father, but... Yeah, you know, and, and York, York I mean, York lying. says... It, it's interesting, I, I, the line that you gave feels like... Like, Richard Plantagenet seems to take to the final extreme the declared political philosophy of York, right? York, earlier in the play has this great line in Act 3 where he says, Show me one scar charactered on thy skin. Men's flesh preserved so whole do seldom win, right? So he's saying, you know, you, you got to get dirty to come out a, as a winner. And Richard Plantagenet's statement that you just said, it's not just a, you got you to gotta play to win. It's, I'm going to do whatever it takes to win. Or I don't know if that's quite the right way of saying it, but... It's it's even more extreme than York's statement. I mean, essentially, right, it's might makes right in this universe. And we're not going to stand for any pretense that the world operates other than thus. It's I mean, it truly is realpolitik, except expressed in a way that's not even about stability, which is ostensibly the purpose that a lot of people who like the realpolitik tradition claim that is supposed to arise from it. It's in the service of, of the pursuit of power, but the pursuit of power in Shakespeare's depiction is intimately tied here to killing and murder and scheming that is not seen to be morally, you know, it's morally justified or good. So it's, it's, it's a, it, again, to the profound sort of political pessimism of the play, it's a, it's quite a, quite a yeah. spectacle. And in line with the general political pessimism, let's turn our attention for the final question to, you know, perhaps the people who are most affected by, you know, by these machinations, which are the actual people of England, uh, you know, and talk a little bit about Shakespeare's portrayal of revolution and the Jack Cade rebellion. Spoiler alert, it's not a very flattering depiction. So, I, I, you know, this was my selection for my passage. It comes in Act 4, Scene 2, and it's basically... So Cade is leading the rebellion. There's a whole group of rebels who are with him, and Cade is more or less laying out the philosophy on which he's he claims he's going to rule and what England will be like once he has taken power. And Cade says, Be brave then, for your captain brave, is brave. Be brave then, for your power. captain is brave, and vows reformation. There shall be in England seven eightpenny loaves sold for a penny. The three hoops pot shall have ten hoops, and I will make it felony to drink small beer. <laughs> All the realm shall be in common, and in Cheapside shall my palfrey go to grass. And when I am king, as king I will be... God save your majesty! I thank you, good people. <laughs> there shall be no money... All shall eat and drink on my score, and I will apparel them all in one livery, that they may agree like brothers and worship me, their lord. The first thing we do, let's kill all the lawyers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Very good, that I mean to do. 
And sort of they go on to have this whole discourse about the clerk of Chatham who is basically condemned for being able to read and write. So so I wanted to talk about this because you would think that, or maybe maybe you wouldn't, but I would think that given how unflattering a presentation Shakespeare has of the nobility, presumably he would be more sympathetic to the people. But then you find with Cade and this rebellion that the aims of the people are really no more noble or well-intentioned than are the aims of the corrupt nobility. Yes, Cade is sort of put up to the rebellion to some degree by uh, by Richard of York. Is that Yes. I believe that's yeah, yeah. correct, right? Doesn't he sort of tell him to claim that he has a legitimate bloodline? Uh, but that pretense falls away pretty quickly in the course of the rebellion. So it's actually kind of an interesting instance of basically Cade kind of being used as a cat's paw by York. But also it's not a very flattering picture of the commoners. Like that's absolutely true. And in some of the stage directions um, in my edition of the play, you know, they describe his followers as being without number on the stage. And this is a this is a play with a huge cast. I think it's the largest cast of all of Shakespeare's uh, plays. So you know, clearly it's meant to represent something in the body politic that is not uh, not a good thing. And really, I mean, as I as I alluded to, there are uh, lots of beheadings, and none of them are merciful. Let's put it that way. Under Cade's brief and terrible reign, I mean, there's a you um, know, there's an yeah. element of just rank cruelty in the way that the rebels behave. I, I don't know if Lord Say deserves to die in the way that he does. I don't remember why he particularly is a subject of popular animus, but. When Lord Say is beheaded, they bring in his head on a pike and they make it to kiss the, you know, the decapitated head of another noble, right? This is not a portrayal of people with legitimate grievances who are pursuing justice. This is a group of people who are petty and cruel and, you know, and, and basically full of malice. You think that's accurate? Yes, I think that's totally accurate. I mean, the butcher is accused of rape by a sergeant in London, who I presume is maybe part of the town guard or uh, something like that. And Cade laughs it off and basically says, oh yeah, like that's, that's hilarious. Like go back and do more of that. And he orders the sergeant to be killed. Who's trying to defend his wife's honor. So malice aforethought. I mean, these guys are a bunch of thugs, you know, the, the idea that they're fighting for justice in the context of the play is kind of an absurdity and portrayed as such. Yeah. And, and to um, go, I mean, this is to go yeah. back to the speech that I that I read by Cade, right? He's gaining support by making pretty deliberately utopian promises, right? He's making promises that are by their nature impossible, right? There shall be in England seven haypenny loaves sold for a penny. The three-hoped pot shall have ten hoops. What he's offering is essentially a fantasy. Yes. Now, here's what I would say. So I'm going to use an elaborate movie analogy to sort of how I would depict this. Cade is sort of like Bane in The Dark Knight Rises, or like the Scarecrow, right, who's presiding over the trial of all of the debauched elite in Gotham, and they're all being executed and... It's a confrontation of one really terrible group of people and another terrible group of people. And, um, you know, it's sort of lawlessness and anarchy. I mean, these guys are a bunch of thugs, right? I think where it's rather interesting, both in the context of the Dark Knight 
trilogy by Christopher Nolan and in the context of this world that Shakespeare is laying out is there is an idea of good nobility that Shakespeare has and that, you know, Nolan to some degree has too, right? It's sort of like there's Bruce Wayne, who's like the noble philanthropist, and there's Jim Gordon and sort of the common people of Gotham who eventually redeem themselves, which, you know, in the Jack Cade's story, the people of London are the ones who ultimately turn on him and desert and turn against him when it becomes completely clear that he is tyrannical and unstable. So it's clear your sympathy is not meant to be with Cade or his guys. They're pretty awful. If there's heroes, it's the people who are trying to end London Bridge being burned down and restore some semblance of stability. Uh, so, you know, that that's sort of what struck me reading Cade. I mean, he's utopian, but it's a sort of almost sick utopianism because it's all premised on bloodshed and murder to get what yeah, he wants. Yeah, I, I don't think it's unfair also to... I, to say that Shakespeare's portrayal of Cade is actually a pretty good prefiguring of a lot of a lot of tyrants who claim to draw their legitimacy from the people, right? When he says, I will appear them all in one livery that they may agree like brothers and worship me, their lord, it's almost a Stalinist vision, right? Everyone's gonna be the same under me and they're gonna worship me. You know, I don't think it's Which is I don't yeah, think it's a yeah. bad presentation of the way successful revolutions often do play out maybe that's too dark yeah and uh, one actually maybe that's too yeah. dark a reading of it but no no i think it's actually a, a certain kind of revolution for sure i mean it's also very striking right that Cade is still saying he's going to become king so he's still using this sort of monarchical construct where he has absolute power and authority and legitimacy in the realm which i think is interesting right it's Yes, there's all this utopian language, but he's not promising really to replace the political structure in any in any profound way. It's just like, well, when I am king of the universe or of England in this context, well, what's, I guess I'm just going to rewrite interesting, the laws. You know, where it is different, way. I think, is in this claim: "I will apparel them all in one livery." Right, the livery being the the uniforms given by nobles to right. their you know, essentially to their retinue or to their vassals. So he's sort of <laughs> promising a world in which everyone, in which there there are no internal divisions, everyone is the same. You know, it's the, that promise of right. sameness. And that, I think, is the... the the truly yeah. revolutionary aspect of it. Yeah, yeah, I think it's, yeah, that idea, that idea of complete consolidation of power and sameness. I, I like, I like that, that phrasing. And it's still, I think what's striking, right, is it's ultimately in the service of him. So you have in his speech, you have both these utopian promises, but you also have the fact that it is ultimately in the service of his absolute power. So in that sense, it's almost like stripping away the revolutionary pretense. Yeah of, you know, a lot of the, the world's great tyrants, particularly in the 20th century, that ascend promising justice, maybe even sincerely promising justice, but he's sort of cutting straight yeah. to the chase in a lot of ways and taking it to the taking it to the extreme. Anything else you want to talk about directly related to the play? No, not directly related to the play. I would love to hear in the casting corner uh, who you would cast in these roles. All right, so I thought a little bit about this. First of all, can we can we lay out some ground rules for yes. the casting, given that we're in a multi-play cycle? My sense is if we're going to be casting all the plays, I think we should not be casting the same people within the same cycle of mm -hmm. plays, 
but once we move out of the cycle, we can, you know, people will become available <laughs> for other yeah, roles. Yeah, yeah. Right? So, so far, as I recall, we have uh, Vincent Carthizer as the Bishop of mm-hmm. Winchester, or the, I guess the Bishop slash Cardinal of Winchester. We have Michael Fassbender as the now deceased Talbot. We have Jennifer Lawrence as Joan of Arc. And I think that was everyone that we had for Henry VI Part One. So, in Henry VI Part Two, I thought the major roles we need to cast are Henry himself, Gloucester, i.e. Humphrey of Gloucester, Richard of York, and Jack Cade. So, here's my take. As Gloucester... I could not come up with a better casting for Gloucester than Sean Bean, aka the OG Ned Stark, and I think it would be—I uh, think it would be nice to see Sean playing the role that seems to have inspired Ned. For Henry the Sixth, right? Henry the Sixth is a—you know—he's highly religious. He's constantly making appeals to God. And he needs, I think, to be a little bit, you know, to have a little bit of that Weasley character. <laughs> um, so I I thought of uh, of Paul Dano, who's done a lot of roles that I think fall into this into this vein. I don't, you know, the, one of the the obvious one or the most similar one would be Dano's character in There Will Be Blood. Although I think this I think this is a less um, Henry the Sixth is a much less efficacious character than is um uh, what's his name in in their old blood uh than paul so sunday if, if i recall if um, i recall correctly the paul sunday character in there will be blood has sort of two sides to him there's a pious preacher yeah. where he's very like presents himself purposefully as kind of lacking guile and then yep. he's actually quite machiavellian so it would just like separate the machiavellianism and then i think you basically have Henry yes VI. i think that's right for Jack Cade, I had a tough time with this one. I think Jack Cade needs to be right. He needs to be funny. It, it, he it is a it is a humorous. It is role. hilarious. It's hilarious. Um, he is the best. But there is you know there's something very dark beneath him. You know as as we talked about. So it needs to be someone who's a strong comedic presence, but who also you know basically who kind of has a, a sliminess to them as well. And the person that I came up with, and I don't think this is a perfect casting, but it's the best I could do, is Ike Barinholtz, who's a, you know, who's a comedian and plays, you know, I don't know if you saw Late Night, but he basically plays this kind of character without, obviously, the violence and the bloodshed of Jack. But, you know, that kind of very unattractive but still funny type of character. And finally, for Richard of York... Another tough one for me. The best name. So a couple of the people that I considered for Richard, you know, Richard really needs to be a killer. The two that I initially thought of were Daniel Craig and Rafe Fiennes, both of whom will obviously be very different interpretations of the role, but who I, both of whom I think have that kind of, you know, can have that kind of energy. And who I ultimately settled on was Tobias Menzies, who probably best known to most people as Edmure Tully in Game of Thrones. Richard obviously is a much more dangerous character than Edmure Tully, but I think Menzies, you know, who's also also played Brutus in the mm-hmm. Rome series on HBO back in the day, I think he has that. It's just not yeah. something that most of yeah. us would be familiar with from his more. I actually quite roles. like that because I think um, Ray Fiennes, who obviously a great great Shakespearean actor, uh, wonderful in Coriolanus and so forth. There's almost an intensity to Ray Fiennes that I think is almost 
almost maybe too much for this role because the characteristic of Richard of York that I sort of find is like almost a guile to him. There's a slyness to him because he's constantly conspiring. And I think that, you know, Tobias Menzies, I mean, I know him from, there was a show with Maggie Gyllenhaal that was focused in Middle Eastern politics and that he was like a, a bodyguard for her in that, I think, or something along those lines. The Honorable Woman. And I believe Tobias Menzies is her bodyguard, but everybody in that is a little bit more complicated than you would necessarily expect and has ulterior motives. And he's a character that I think, uh, or an actor that I think can pull that off. So yeah, I really like that. I, you know, the other question is Richard Plantagenet, a.k.a. Richard III. So. Well, I think... So, but here, right, so this yeah. is the thing, uh, you know, is that I don't think we can do that until we That's get true. to Richard That's III, true. because if, if we're going with these casting rules, we have to have the same actor play these roles in all four plays. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I, 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 can see the, I can see the rationale for that. So, for rankings, uh, well, first question on the rankings front. So, who do you think, who do you find to be the MVP character in this play? Who is the character that, that makes you want to uh, see this Jack play? Jack Cade, no question. Jack Cade is, like, diabolical and sinister. He's also hilarious. And by the time you get to Cade's Rebellion, like, the play just takes off and does not stop. It's really a nonstop thrill ride after that point. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I, I feel like the, the play almost feels to me like it's two separate stories, right? I feel like Acts 1 through 3 are basically the story of the fall of mm-hmm. Gloucester. And then Acts 4 and 5 are Cade's Rebellion setting up Richard of York's Rebellion. Yes. Yeah, no, that, um, that's right. They're almost two complete and separate stories. Yes, one is sort of the story of the debauchery and decadence of the noble elite, and the other is about the decadence and debauchery of the people, right? So it sort of makes sense, yeah, you know? exactly. Um, <laughs> exactly. Um, I think I would probably... It's tough. I mean, Cade's such a small role, though he is he is kind of the... the He's definitely the most fun character, but I think I probably would have to go with Richard of York yeah. for the MVP. Of so, I, to that point, House of York or House of Lancaster? You know, I'm I'm really a legitimist, Will, so I I would fall into the Lancastrian camp. But you know, we're we're dealing with two pretty terrible. Uh, yes, I I would agree with that. Though you know, if obviously Henry the Fourth, though not a legitimate king, usurped. Richard II. So in that sense, are you really a legitimist? That's my question for you, you know? Because you're just backing the three-generation coup dynasty, basically, um, against, you know, the guy who's got a, uh, a, a fairly tenuous claim, but they both have tenuous claims. So I'm a Yorkist, obviously, in this in this instance. Well, I'm, I'm interested. T- t- tell me more. So why are you a Yorkist? Well, okay. So... Well. Part of it is, like, look, if you're gonna, if you're gonna watch... Uh, basically these noblemen be bastards to one another. I have very little patience for watching Gloucester kind of let the realm go to ruin out of high principle. You know, I mean, it's sort of like you got to get some skin in the game. And while the Yorks are uh, kind of amoral and awful to watch and completely Machiavellian and morally reprehensible, they do have skin in the game. Their problem is they don't have they don't have principles at all, but they are very effective, and so that's very interesting to watch. It's more fun than watching all of these 
pious lords that are completely incapable. So that's my that's my short answer there. It's not so much a judgment of affinity or political liking, but it is sort of a statement of, you know, at some point, politics is about power. Ideally, it's power in the service of, of some higher ideal and in the service of the welfare of, of people. That's not what the Yorkists are about. However, we've been watching a play where there is no you know, real effective exercise of power by the sovereign, and that is also not good. So I, I kind of want to see the overcorrection in the last play and then in Richard III. You know, we'll get the downside of the Yorkist side of things. Yeah, I, I I definitely understand that, and I think there's a lot of logic to it. I think, you know, ultimately I would, you know, I think ultimately I would fall on the Lancastrian side, mostly because I view the Yorkists as seeking out this rebellion. You know, Henry is ineffectual, but that doesn't necessarily mean that there's a reason for there to be a rebellion or for the Yorkists to seek power. And I think, you know, Gloucester is brought down as a part of that effort by the Yorkists to seek power. Right. You know, and if if not for that ambition, Gloucester might have continued to, you know, muddle through and, you know, probably, I, I, I will put it this way, bad administration is nonetheless probably better than, you know, the decade-long War of the Roses and attendant death and destruction and mayhem. Yeah, yeah, um, I can see that. I mean, to me, like, the ideal, right, is Gloucester, you know, a la what Ned Stark, did, you know, only did at the very end and sort of failed at. Gloucester should have found some way of killing Suffolk and revealing Margaret of Anjou as a snake. And he should have made yeah. common... He probably should have made common cause with uh, York and then betrayed York down the line. I mean, I don't know. Just speaking purely, yeah. he should have used sort of the division in the kingdom and yoked the strength of somebody else that he could, you know, later get rid of um, to, to sort of deal with the king's most immediate enemies. But yeah, I mean, there's no good way to deal with the situation he faced. I just feel like sitting back and being a victim of events is definitely not a good option. So, yeah, I, I think I'll be interested to revisit Gloucester and his approach to politics after we read the uh, the Henry V cycle. I have yeah, to say. yeah. Well, it sounds great. Um, Will, ranking the play, where do you put Henry VI Part Two? I liked it more than Part One. I've got to say. Yeah, I think I, I I was initially you know the first the first maybe two acts I was like man this play this play really misses having you know the energy of Talbot and Joan and then as I got more into it you know it's it's really a rich text I think I would say I would say once we hit Act Four and the, once we've hit the Fall of Gloucester in Act Four I was fully in on this as as the top one that we've read so far I, I kind of feel like though that probably for the next few plays. You know, as we're in the period of Shakespeare's early work and you see how he's improving play to play, I think we'll probably, I think this trend will continue for a couple more plays. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, it's, this is such a rich play. The language is excellent and is, I think, even better than part one. It's improved, you know, as you say, deep, it really does reward a close reading. It's also funny. It's, uh, it's tragic. There's characters that sort of, start revealing real personalities. I don't think we're at like very complex psychological portrayals yet, but we're getting there. You know, it's getting closer and closer yeah. uh, to sort of 
why we continue to read Shakespeare today, I think, in terms of the psychological insight that he provides. So, Agreed. Uh, Will, before we go, anything you're reading or watching right now that you want to recommend? So I downloaded the complete Sherlock Holmes, which is like 50 hours or something on Audible, and I am quite enjoying that as a way to unwind on all of my travel. So recommend it very highly. Cool. And that's our show. Tune in for our episode on Henry VI Part 3 and find out the fate of Henry and the Richards. Thanks for tuning in to Bardflies. If you like the show, please subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, share the show with your friends, and give us a glowing five-star review. You can also follow us at Bardflies on Twitter and drop us a line at bardfliespodcast at gmail.com.